It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. The following episode includes discussions of genocide, lynching, racism, and several acts of extreme violence that some listeners might find offensive. Please exercise caution for children under 13. The shore of America drifted into view over the horizon. Tisquantum had never seen such a beautiful sight. After so many interminable years, he was mere miles away from a reunion with his friends and family in the Pawtuxet tribe, his people. The journey had been a long one. Seven years earlier, he was captured and sold into slavery. He felt like he had aged several lifetimes during his captivity in Europe. After months of attempting to beg and barter his way across the Atlantic, he found himself on a ship captained by Thomas Dermer. Tisquantum was one of the first men ashore when Dermer's ship dropped anchor in Cape Cod. His heart was filled with hope, the only thing that had kept him going during his long years of servitude. But he was destined for disappointment. Tisquantum had come home, but there was not a familiar face in sight. In between his kidnapping and return to America, virtually the entire Pawtuxet people had died of disease. Tisquantum was one of the last members of his tribe still alive. The story of his enslavement would be largely ignored by American history books for centuries. Instead, they would focus solely on his role as a translator for the English settlers, ignoring how he learned English in the first place. Even his name would be shortened in these tellings, becoming a synonym for the noble savage cliché. In the story of the first Thanksgiving, he would be known simply as Squanto. Welcome to The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original a show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. This is our sixth episode on the dark side of holidays. The holiday season may be seen as a time of celebration for many, but its saccharine exterior conceals many unpleasant truths. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. 
And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Today, we're exploring the time-honored holiday of Thanksgiving. Every fourth Thursday in November, we gather with extended family members to consume far too much food and reminisce about the founding of America. But in today's episode, we'll explore how the story of this amicable feast is a lie. The history of the most American of all holidays is much like the country it is founded on. Rustic, optimistic, and built on centuries of bloodshed and theft. We'll tell the real story of how white settlers gained their foothold in the New World, leading up to the horrific and often forgotten King Philip's War in the late 1600s. As October rolls into November, the fall months settle in. Leaves change from green to brown, yellow, and red. The air carries a sharp chill, promising snow in a few weeks. And all across America, families gather to share a lavish meal. The tradition of Thanksgiving dinner. According to popular history and an astonishing number of school textbooks, Thanksgiving has been a staple of American culture since the Pilgrim Fathers first touched down on Plymouth Rock in 1620. But in truth, the holiday was initially a relatively small local custom, going back to some of the earliest English settlements in America. An annual Day of Thanksgiving was not seen as a universal holiday, but varied depending on each community. Thanksgiving itself didn't gain any serious traction as a national holiday until much later. In the early 1800s, prolific writer and magazine editor Sarah Josepha Hale read about the 1620s feast and became obsessed with making this day a national holiday. Starting in 1827, Hale regularly penned poems, turkey-themed recipes, and editorials every year insisting upon a holiday commemorating the founding of the country. Decades into her efforts, she began a passionate lobbying campaign to convince President Abraham Lincoln to make the holiday a reality. On October 3, 1863, in the thick of the Civil War, President Lincoln finally broke his silence on the subject. He proclaimed that in the midst of conflict, Americans often took their blessings for granted, saying, I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States, and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands, to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. This proclamation did not even mention the now mythical first Thanksgiving, but the day was enough. Hale's influence was very strong in making sure that the holiday was subsequently tied to the history of her home in New England. Thanksgiving slowly gained prominence during the Reconstruction era. 
Eventually, it became so popular that it subsumed another holiday that already occupied the late November slot, particularly in New York State, Evacuation Day. Evacuation Day, once as prominent on the calendar as Independence Day, was a yearly celebration of the day that the English retreated from New York during the Revolutionary War. But as Thanksgiving gained in popularity, Evacuation Day faded into obscurity, replaced by a different holiday fueled by national pride, that of the nation's Puritan ancestors breaking bread with Native Americans in the fall of 1621. To be clear, the 1621 meal did take place sometime between late September and early November. The Pilgrim Fathers ate with the Wampanoag, a collection of Native American tribes led by the tribal leader, or sachem, of the Poconoket Osamaquin. He would be more well-known by the title of Massasoit, which means Great Sachem. However, this feast's historical significance is largely overblown. The feast, which likely included wild fowl, shellfish, flint corn, and chestnuts, was not even called a thanksgiving. It was merely a gathering to celebrate a successful harvest. The event lasted for three days. Pilgrim journals from the time named Massasoit and 90 members of his tribe as the guests of honor. The Native Americans at this gathering vastly outnumbered the pilgrims. Of the 102 men and women who had arrived on the Mayflower that December, only 53 were alive to celebrate this harvest. The pilgrims did not even have enough food to supply the 90 guests, and Massasoit's men had to hunt a number of extra deer for the feast. Everything we know about this meal comes from the writings of two individuals, pilgrims Edward Winslow and William Bradford. They both wrote surprisingly optimistic accounts despite the prior deaths of nearly half their party. Their letters assert the possibility of prosperity in their new home with the help of their gracious allies. But like many European accounts of the time, their perspective was well, incomplete. The so-called First Thanksgiving is seen by many modern Americans as a celebration of hope and unity reinforcing the idea that this new land was prosperous and vast enough to share between cultures. But if the pilgrims had touched down only 10 years earlier, they would have found a far more crowded country than the one they saw in 1620. They were not the first Europeans to land in the New World, and their predecessors had already brought death to the shores of America. A common assumption of Thanksgiving is that Europeans were newcomers in the country. The pilgrims, after all, arrived in 1620 to escape religious persecution. But that is only part of the truth. While the pilgrim fathers did arrive on the Mayflower in December of 1620 to found the settlement of Plymouth, Massachusetts, they were far from the first foreigners to make their home on the east coast of America. Non-native settlers had been making incursions into North America as early as the 1520s. The first non-native settlement in the New World was San Miguel de Waldape, 
built in 1526 by the Spanish in present-day South Carolina. Led by Lucas Vasquez de Ón, roughly 600 explorers and an unknown number of enslaved Africans attempted to make their home in North America. However, their expedition was doomed to failure, and four months later, most of the Spanish had died of hunger and disease. During the woeful early years, the enslaved Africans mutinied, burning down much of the settlement. This was the first recorded slave rebellion in history. The 150 surviving Spaniards returned home. Some accounts assert that the surviving Africans remained behind, but there are no records of what became of the settlement after the Spanish fled. As of 2019, no archaeological evidence of San Miguel de Waldape has been found. Despite this, the doomed expedition sparked an interest in the New World that continued throughout the 1500s. Both Spain and France launched a number of voyages to colonize the east coast of America, often resulting in violence and death. For instance, in 1565, the Spanish massacred a number of French Protestants who settled near modern-day Jacksonville, Florida. In the following years, from 1565 to 1568, the Spanish explored the Carolinas, building forts which were subsequently destroyed by the native inhabitants. Try as they might, finding a foothold on this side of the New World was proving difficult. The Dutch settled near present-day Albany, New York in 1614. Most traveled there seeking wealth and new business opportunities in the untamed land. But like many colonizers before them, they brought with them silent weapons that ravaged the country they desired to settle. By 1620, the Native American population of New England was utterly decimated through both deliberate attacks and subtler means. Almost as soon as they arrived at the New World, Europeans kidnapped Native Americans for slave labor. In one instance, Thomas Hunt, lieutenant of Captain John Smith, visited the Patuxet tribe and invited them aboard his ship. Among these natives was a young man named Tisquantum. As soon as they were aboard, Hunt and his men pressed them toward the hold without warning or explanation. Tisquantum and the others fought back, only for the English to respond with gunfire. Pistol fire swept the deck, cutting the Pawtuxet men down mercilessly. Of those assembled, only 19, including Tisquantum, survived. They were forced at gunpoint into the hold and taken back to England as cargo. Tisquantum and his 18 Pawtuxet companions were, after a fashion, lucky. Shortly after that particular slave ship departed, things took a sharp turn for the worse in their homeland. A deadly epidemic struck the eastern United States. To this day, experts debate what exactly the outbreak consisted of. Smallpox, yellow fever, influenza, and black plague have all been candidates over the years. But the consensus is clear. Disease came to America along with the colonists. 
Mainland Europeans who visited the Massachusetts coast during the early 17th century were utterly filthy compared to Native Americans. Indigenous American culture placed an extremely high importance on bathing regularly and caring for personal hygiene. By contrast, the inhabitants of Europe and England almost never bathed, believing it was unhealthy and rarely took off all of their clothes at once because it was immodest. Because of this, the average European was practically a petri dish of any number of diseases. England and mainland Europe had been ravaged by the Black Death almost three centuries earlier, so Europeans' immune systems were well adjusted to the kind of putrid conditions that caused the plague in the first place. Native Americans, on the other hand, had no immunities to the germs Europeans would bring with them. They had no defenses. Up next, we'll discuss one of the deadliest epidemics in world history and how European settlers knowingly profited off of it. Now back to the story. The myth of the first Thanksgiving states that during their first fall in North America, the pilgrims held a celebratory feast with the local Native Americans, a promise of peace and partnership from the first Europeans in the New World. This story is full of inaccuracies and historical blind spots. While the pilgrims did land in 1620, they were far from the first. In fact, their arrival was the latest in a long line of European incursions to Native American land. And the land they settled was already prepared for them. Native American agricultural work paved the way for the pilgrims to have a comfortable arrival in Plymouth when the Mayflower landed. Underbrush had been cleared, and the wilderness they encountered was significantly tamed by natives, most of whom had moved away or died of plague. Between 1617 and 1620, a grisly epidemic of unknown diseases struck the native population of America, carried by European fishermen and traders. The death toll was steep. Precise numbers are difficult to determine, but experts believe as many as 90% of the native population of Massachusetts Bay Colony were dead by 1619. The Massachusetts, a tribe living in what would become present-day Boston, saw their number of warriors dwindle from 3,000 to just over 300 between 1615 and 1675. The low number of survivors makes it nearly impossible to determine what specific disease this was. Symptoms included headaches, heavy nosebleeds, fever, skin lesions, and jaundice. During the plague, if a tribe was decimated by disease, surviving members would abandon the corpse-strewn village for any friendly tribe that would take them in. This completely natural impulse led survivors of epidemics to spread often fatal diseases throughout the native community. Therefore, even tribes of Native Americans who had never set eyes on a white man were susceptible to the rapidly spreading illness. A 2019 study concluded that the mass death of Native Americans was so great, 
it caused the temperature of planet Earth to briefly drop due to overgrown crops sucking a significant amount of CO2 out of the air. Certain tribes, such as Tisquantum's native Patuxet tribe, were completely wiped out by disease. Entire villages lay in ruins, scattered with the desiccated bones of dead natives who had no one left to bury them. The English did not see any problems with this. In fact, it worked to their benefit. Unlike the Spanish in the 1560s, they were met with no real Native American resistance. Massasoit's willingness to break bread with the pilgrims was not simply the benevolent gesture it is depicted as in textbooks, but rather a pragmatic decision by a leader who saw his own people weakened by disease. The germ theory of disease was not yet a universally held belief, so neither Native Americans nor English knew what their contact was doing to each other. And to the English, the plagues were not a horrible result of their poor hygiene. They were divine intervention, showing them that God was on their side. This belief was only bolstered by a number of subsequent smallpox epidemics throughout the colonies, which paved the way for colonial expansion. In 1631, Puritan minister Increase Mather wrote of an outbreak settling a land dispute between Native Americans and the European immigrants. God ended the controversy by sending the smallpox amongst the Indians. Whole towns of them were swept away, in some of them not so much as one soul escaping the destruction. Similar accounts of disease at the time are abundant, showing English settlers delighted to see God clear the way for their new settlements. In 1634, John Winthrop, governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony, wrote to a friend in England, But for the natives in these parts, God hath so pursued them, as for three hundred miles space the greatest part of them are swept away by the smallpox, which still continues among them. So as God hath thereby cleared our title to this place, those who remain in these parts, being in all not fifty, have put themselves under our protection. While such biblical interpretations of illness gave Puritans the belief that God was on their side, it sapped the faith of the surviving natives. The natives felt that their own gods had abandoned them. Some Cherokee priests were so distraught after smallpox ravaged their people that they destroyed their own idols and objects of worship in despair. Including the plague of 1617, Historians have cataloged 93 different epidemics among Native American communities between 1520 and 1918. While precise population counts are unknown, it is believed that the diseases spread by Europeans to Natives made the Black Death of the 1300s pale by comparison. That only wiped out one-third of Europe, after all. But not all mass killings were accidental. In 1623, only two years after Massasoit broke bread with the pilgrims, colonists in Virginia committed the first instance of deliberate mass slaughter of Native Americans. By the Potomac River, they invited a number of indigenous Americans over for a toast, symbolizing 
eternal friendship. The Kiskiak Sachem dropped dead within minutes of this toast, along with his family, advisors, and around 200 of his tribesmen. The drinks had been poisoned. The Virginian colonists were not only cruel in their treatment of the natives, they were also woefully inept at working the land once they had cleared it. In their early years, they often prioritized digging for gold over planting crops. During winters, some are thought to have resorted to digging up corpses of Native American and colonists to eat when they were out of food. Finally, after years of poverty and starvation, they kidnapped Native Americans, forcing them to teach them how to properly work the land. Through the attempts of moderate leaders like Massasoit, something approaching peace was achieved in Plymouth. He signed an official peace treaty with the Pilgrims in March of 1621, which prevented outright war from breaking out between their people. Let's be clear here. When we say peace, we are speaking entirely in relative terms. As we've discussed, there was no point in history where racism and deep, ugly prejudices did not color the relationships between Native Americans and English settlers. Even when they first arrived in the country, settlers refused to credit Native Americans for the help they gave them. One Pilgrim Journal describes an instance where they encountered an empty Native American home. Claiming they intended to trade with the occupant, they robbed the interior, writing, as soon as we can meet with the Indians, we will pay them well for what we took. The same pilgrim wrote of encountering Native American crops. It was with God's help that we found this corn, for how else could we have done it without meeting some Indians who might trouble us? They would sooner thank God for leading them to food than the people who planted the food in the first place. And these slights were far from the worst offenses committed by colonizers. The same pilgrim wrote of coming upon a place like a grave that they dug up and robbed. They wrote, We took some of the prettiest things to carry away with us and covered the body up again. For the callousness of this act to even occur shows that indigenous Americans were not human enough to this unnamed writer. Sometime between 1660 and 1661, Massasoit passed away. During his life, his guidance had prevented Plymouth Colony from collapsing, and his death heralded the end of peaceful relations between Native Americans and European settlers. Wamsuda, Massasoit's oldest son, became the new sachem of the Poconoket. The world he entered was far more precarious than the one his father had successfully negotiated in the 1620s. When the agreement between the two groups was made, both the Pilgrims and the Wampanoag were weak, the former from how poorly prepared they were for their new home, the latter from disease. In the intervening years, both groups had grown in strength. The personal connections Massasoit had forged with pilgrim leaders had been based on mutual struggle. Now that the leaders on both sides of that initial meeting were mostly dead or dying, these bonds were merely a faint memory. 
Early in his time as sachem, Wamsuda requested that he and his younger brother Medicom be given English names to signify their relationship with both peoples. Wamsuda was given the name Alexander, after Alexander of Macedon. Medicom was named Philip, after Alexander the Great's brother. Despite this gesture of cultural unity, the English did not trust Alexander. Rumors that he was planning a war circulated throughout Plymouth Colony. Then, in 1662, they heard that Alexander had sold patches of land to the Rhode Island colonies. The governing council of Plymouth Colony demanded that Alexander appear before the court to explain himself. And Alexander did not appear. In July of 1662, a party of men led by Major Josiah Winslow rode to Alexander's hunting lodge near Halifax, Massachusetts. They captured him and a handful of his men some distance from their main camp. Under the threat of violence, Alexander was forced to march back toward Plymouth for questioning. Shortly after being interrogated by Plymouth officials, Alexander fell extremely ill. Historians don't know exactly what happened, but by the time he was heading back to rejoin his tribe, he was almost completely disabled. Fuller, a Plymouth Colony physician, attempted to care for the sachem's malady by applying what they referred to as a working physic. Fuller's attempts were unsuccessful, and Alexander died shortly thereafter. A number of contemporary physicians believe that Alexander had appendicitis, and Fuller's attempt at a cure inadvertently killed the sachem. Following his brother's death, 24-year-old Philip became the new sachem of the Poconocet. He faced immense pressure from all sides, and like many others in his tribe, he believed quite understandably that the English had poisoned his brother. But Philip did not attack right away. He would not attack the English without thoroughly considering the consequences. But as he considered what to do to address this injustice, the English were already turning their suspicions on him. In 1667, a rumor began in Plymouth that Philip was joining with the Dutch and French to launch an attack against the English. Unlike his brother, Philip willingly went to Plymouth to defend himself and was successful in nipping the fearmongering in the bud. However, this peace was short-lived. Four years later, fresh word of the Wampanoag and Narragansett planning for war reached Plymouth authorities. In April of 1671, Philip met with representatives of Plymouth and Massachusetts Bay Colony. At the end of the meeting, Philip signed an agreement conceding that he had planned an attack and would therefore surrender all of his tribe's weapons in the coming months. Whether or not actual war plans existed is the subject of some debate. Most modern historians believe that Philip was not really admitting guilt, but rather conceding to unreasonable English demands in order to preserve peace. In the end, the Wampanoag did not surrender their weapons. Instead, 
both English and native forces stocked up on weaponry. The years between 1671 and 1675 have been referred to by historians as a sort of Cold War, where both sides were prepared for an armed conflict to break out. It's important to note that the technological superiority of the English was not a foregone conclusion at the time. Due to the active trading going on between the English and the Native Americans, almost all indigenous tribes were adept in the use of muskets. Native hunters were often more skilled with firearms than the English were due to experience using them daily. If war broke out, no one could be certain of the victor. And in 1675, it did. What followed was one of the most significant and bloody wars on the American continent. One often completely overlooked by contemporary history books. We'll dive into the gruesome conflict known as King Philip's War after this. Now back to the story. The pilgrims often credited with founding the United States colonies owe their survival to the support of the Wampanoag sachem known as Massasoit. But by the early 1660s, Massasoit was dead and his sons succeeded him as sachem. Metacom, also known as Philip, took over in 1662 and almost immediately found himself beset by the same bigotry and distrust that probably killed his older brother. Tension between Native American people and the United Colonies simmered from 1671 to 1675. Both sides stockpiled weapons ready at any moment for armed conflict to break out. In January of 1675, a body was found beneath the ice of Assawampset Pond in Massachusetts. It was the body of John Sassamon, a Native American of the Massachusetts tribe. He had been converted to Christianity, becoming what was known at the time as a praying Indian. Christian Native Americans were often used as mediators between the English and Native communities. Just before his death, Sassamon had been dismissed from Sachem Phillips Council. Historians are uncertain why he was dismissed. It's possible he was accused of spying on Philip for the English. But his death at first was believed to be an accident. Until another Christian Native American named Pawtuxen claimed to have seen the murder. Three Native Americans, Matashunamo, Tobias, and Wampapaquan, were arrested and taken to Plymouth Harbor for a murder trial. Puritan Increase Mather wrote, they had a fair trial for their lives and that no appearance of wrong might be. Indians, as well as English, sat upon the jury. But this was an exaggeration. In truth, the jury was comprised of 12 Englishmen with a subordinate jury of four Christian Native Americans. The efforts of Christian missionaries paid off in this jury, which seemed deliberately designed to divide converted Native Americans and those that still held to traditional non-Christian religions. Historian Francis Jennings wrote, This was a show trial staged for political purposes from beginning to end. 
All three men were found guilty and sentenced to death. Mather wrote that Wampapaquan made a confession of sorts, saying that Tobias and Montesunamo had committed the murder, but that he was innocent. This statement would have stung, as Tobias was Wampapaquan's father. Whether this was an earnest confession or a desperate attempt to save his life, we will never know. On June 8, 1675, the three Native Americans were taken to the gallows. All three of them were hanged. Matashunamo and Tobias died instantly. But Wampapakwan's rope broke, and the surprised man hit the earth beneath the other hanging men. Wampapakwan was questioned again, and he doubled down on his accusation of the other two. It's possible that the Puritans offered him a reprieve in exchange for a confession. Wampapakwan lived for an extra month in captivity before he was shot to death. Philip and his people saw the show trial as a horrible failure of justice. It was the exact sort of thing that could push someone like Philip into declaring war. Former governor of Rhode Island, John Easton, made an attempt to persuade Philip to exercise moderation. Philip responded by giving Easton an exhaustive list of grievances his people had against the Puritans. His brothers suspected poisoning, the theft of the land, fraud, uncontrollable livestock, and utter ingratitude for everything Massasoit did for them when they first arrived in the country. In his writings, Easton paraphrased Philip as saying, if 20 of their honest Indians had testified that an Englishman had done them wrong, it was as nothing. And if but one of their worst Indians testified against any Indian of their king, when it pleased the English, it was sufficient. To Philip, the injustices had gone on for far too long. He was ready to fight for his people's rights. The attack, when it came, was not nearly as coordinated as the English had suspected it would be. On June 20, 1675, a band of Poconocet warriors raided Swansea, a small Plymouth settlement in southeast Massachusetts. Two days later, a messenger reached Josiah Winslow, governor of Plymouth County. He gave the order to raise a militia of 200 men to stifle the rebellion. The initial goal of the colonists was to capture King Philip and end the revolution before it even started. But the ill-prepared English could not corner Philip, and the conflict dragged on. The military strategy of the English proved poorly suited to fighting Native Americans. English warfare relied on volleys to cut down scores of opponents. Native Americans operated using more modern techniques. They used cover and guerrilla tactics to pick off their foes as they stumbled through the underbrush. Over the following year, the United Colonies were devastated by the war. By spring of 1676, a number of Massachusetts settlements, including Springfield, Lancaster, Groton, and Dartmouth, had been abandoned. And yet, by spring of 1676, Philip's momentum was slowing. The Native American Army's chief asset, its mobility, hampered their chance of cultivating crops or growing any food of their own, 
so supplies were woefully low. Realizing this, the English prioritized denying their enemy access to food stores, hoping to starve the natives into surrendering. As the war effort faltered, tribe after tribe of Philip's allies surrendered to the English. But Philip himself managed to evade capture. On both August 1st and 3rd, a band of colonial soldiers led by Benjamin Church spotted Philip, but were unable to apprehend him. On August 11th, 1676, Church's men were approached by John Alderman, a Christian Wampanoag, who told them he knew where Philip was camped. For the first time in the entire war effort, the colonists would be one step ahead of their elusive enemy. Why Alderman chose to betray his sachem is unknown. Increase Mather's writings theorize that his brother may have been killed by Philip for suggesting surrender. But given Mather's unfair portrayal of Native Americans in the past, this suggestion is worth some skepticism. Despite some misgivings from Church, Alderman's information proved to be accurate. On the morning of August 12th, they ambushed Philip. In the chaos, Alderman shot Philip, mortally wounding him. Moments later, the man who fought the injustice of the English was dead. The colonists were overjoyed. The dead sachem was beheaded and quartered. The quarters of his body were hung from trees. Philip's head was sent to Plymouth. On August 17th, it was mounted on a spike for all to see. Some say that it remained there for decades. But the conflicts dragged on for years after Philip's death. Hostilities didn't officially end until the signing of the Treaty of Casco in 1678. It took almost 100 years for the United Colonies to reach the same level of prosperity they had achieved before King Philip's War. The Wampanoag and the Narragansett people, on the other hand, never fully recovered from their losses. One estimate claims that up to 3,000 Native American people died in King Philip's War. When compared to the estimated Native population of 20,000 in New England at the time, the number is staggering. Plymouth Colony may have lost around 8% of its adult male population in the war, but the Natives lost up to 15% of their total population. The story of the first Thanksgiving seems all the less significant when weighed against the losses that followed. The founding of America is a story often told only from one perspective with large pieces missing. The myth of the first Thanksgiving is the perfect summation of that tendency. In the cliché picture of the first Thanksgiving, we see Native Americans welcome pilgrims into their country as if no other Europeans had set foot there before, and they are merely new visitors. The truth is that however friendly Massasoit's behavior toward the pilgrims was, the meal we glorify as the first Thanksgiving was merely a brief period of calm between two horrific events. The devastating epidemics that ravaged the native population mere years before and King Philip's war 
that came only 50 years after. The iconography we link to Thanksgiving, such as pilgrims, cheerful Native Americans, and plump turkeys, is itself a celebration of willful ignorance. For all its sweetness and good intentions, a gourd overflowing with fruit and a fully stuffed turkey are painting over the true origins of the holiday. A number of Native American communities use Thanksgiving as an opportunity to celebrate their cultural heritage and ensure that the memory of the people ruthlessly slaughtered before and after the pilgrim's arrival does not vanish. Rather than see Native Americans as supporting players in the pilgrim story, an honest depiction of the first Thanksgiving is the framework of a tragedy. A people who suffered unpredictable horrors at the hands of Europeans, only to have the violence ignored to focus on a nice meal. Thanks for listening to The Dark Side Of. Next week, we'll continue our exploration of the dark side of holidays with a more modern Thanksgiving tale. The story of the marriage family and what happens when an unstable family member sets out to spoil the holiday for everyone involved. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like The Dark Side Of for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream The Dark Side Of on Spotify, just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Joel Stein, and Travis Clark. This episode was written by Robert Teamstra and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rosner.